welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us for this show. If this is your first show, we should introduce ourselves. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've been a real estate investor and a professor of philosophy, and I've written a few books, and my latest book is entitled In the House of Tom Bombadil. With that in mind, why don't we go to you, Tom? Price. <laughs> Tom Price, that is right. <laughs> I teach uh, theology, ethics, and uh, philosophy in one of the places at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And now we have our jet-setting member who's just arrived at home after a trip to the Pacific Northwest, not in my neck of the woods, but uh, a place that some of our listeners will recognize. Glenn, tell us a little bit about the, the, yourself and your recent adventures. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a retired history professor. Um, I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and a ministry associated Reflections Ministries. And my new book is going to be coming out in mid to late March. Uh, it's called 32 Christians Who Changed Their World. It's a series of short biographies. Uh, we've got people from uh, China, India, uh, Japan, uh, a couple of places in Africa, Europe, North America, South America, and Mongolia. Wow. So, um, it, and they're <laughs> from all good. different kinds of walks of life. They do all different kinds of things. And the point of the book is to show how uh, people, you don't have to be a, a professional Christian like you, uh, Chris. <laughs> uh, to, I get to, paid to do this. Don't yeah. try it at home. <laughs> to, to, uh, to live out your faith and to make an enormous difference in the world around you. It, it's a, uh, a way of showing what living a biblical worldview looks like and hopefully inspiring a little bit of, of it uh, in the readers. And I was in Moscow, Idaho. It's being published by Canon Press. Um, you should be looking pretty soon for the pre-release uh, material on it at canon.com. It, like I said, it'll be out mid to late March. I think I said that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're a little tired. You're a little uh, tired. You, yeah, you haven't yeah. slept here, in like 48 here, 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 hours. <laughs> here, 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 herein lies the problem. I was supposed <laughs> to come back yesterday um, via Minneapolis. And for those of you who are, are pay attention to the weather, that will tell you when I didn't come back. Um, <laughs> the, the major snowstorm up there. So they had to reroute me, and there was no good way to do it uh, around the snowstorm. So I got up at, well, it was about 5 o'clock Pacific time yesterday, uh, 8 o'clock Eastern time, and I just got home an hour ago. That's 8 in the morning. You know, yeah. So. Yeah, and you've dozed on the plane, but not really slept. Right. It's hard to sleep on planes. I don't yeah. sleep on planes. I actually dozed <laughs> after I got here. <laughs> so if you nod off in the middle of the show, we'll forgive you and we'll, yeah. we'll nudge you. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have Lynn come over and nudge you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so if I end up yawning or something like that, it's not because I'm bored. Trust me. <laughs> That's All my right, story well, and I'm sticking to it. Right, right. <laughs> Well, uh, it's my day today for, uh, this, for the subject of the day, and hopefully it'll keep you engaged. I, I think it will, Glenn. So I want to talk about the notorious uh, Klaus Schwab. And I don't want to you know, focus in just on you know, his kind of Bond villain kind of persona uh, or the World Economic Forum and its machinations. I'm more interested in a statement that uh, everyone knows Klaus made or at least was made by the World Economic Forum, that 
just cause people to scratch their heads and say, what are, what are these people thinking? Where are they coming from? Uh, and that statement is, you will own nothing and you will be happy. <laughs> now, there is a lot packed in to that statement in the sense that there are certain assumptions about human nature, certain assumptions about happiness that are operative, uh, you know, beneath the surface here that I think would be, you know, good to bring to the surface. So that's what I'd like us to talk about. Um, the title of the show today, well, uh, people have already seen the title, but in the course of our conversation, it should wait. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but let, let's, let's explore this a little bit. Now, so can, each of you, when I, you, when you hear, I make a general sure, statement first, as a yeah. general rule of thumb, whenever someone uh, proposes some sort of sweeping restructuring of society, my my answer is always after you. Yes. <laughs> if they refuse to take the lead on it, yeah. I am not, you know, so all these people, I mean, I just uh, saw James Cameron um, was saying that, you know, Thanos was onto something. We could really lose about 50 percent of the people on the planet. After you, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I would That's say true. the same thing to Charles Schwab. You want to own nothing? Feel free. Yeah. Show me what you you yeah. mean Klaus Schwab? Charles Klaus Schwab, Schwab is the guy that yeah. wants you to buy things, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, Klaus. <laughs> I haven't slept much. <laughs> right. But it's um, be a great excuse this show. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, let, let's dig into it a little bit. So, so Tom, what do you see as sort of uh, the sort of the the tacit definition of a human being that apparently uh, Schwab thinks to be the case? In other words, what are we? Yeah, we're we're surface level in in ba base, uh, uh, you know, we're we're as basic as you can get. Um, basically, material creatures that um, pleasure is kind of the highest good, um, and that as long as we can and 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 the um, mix that in with the modern notion of the self, which ironically is not always consistent with materialism, but it's this very notion that we can choose certain kinds of things that will make us happy um, and give us pleasure. And so if we can pick our identity or sexuality or what makes us satisfied on that particular level, whatever else is out there, really, any higher good is in insignificant. Yeah, yeah, or just doesn't exist. Or yeah. Because if it did, if it were, were truly higher, then it could... Uh, require things of us, make demands upon us. Yeah. yeah. Any thoughts, Glenn? Yeah, it's it, it's worth noting that you know, that going back to Declaration of Independence, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, that was originally in John Locke, life, liberty, and property. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Jefferson snuck property in, sort of in that phrase, pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Because Jefferson was using happiness in as a translation of the Greek word eudaimonia, which means yeah. a life well-lived, a life yeah. of virtue and all of that, and a life of excellence. And the trick is that Jefferson firmly believed that in order to achieve eudaimonia, you had to have property. Yeah, that was actually one of the preconditions for the franchise at that mm -hmm. time. I mean, they assumed that only property owners... I don't know if assumed is the right term. I, I think they were of the conviction that only property owners should have the franchise. Right. And um, the reason for that is they've got something to lose. They're right. less likely to make rash decisions. Right. Yeah. It's easy to spend other people's money. Uh, right. It's not so easy to spend your own. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. 
So anyway, I think those, I think all those things are true and in play. Um, but I think it also kind of gets at, uh, what we've seen with regard to, uh, the rise of the, and the triumph of the modern self as our friend, you know, Carl Truman has put it in which, um, it's kind of this, uh, psychological, I guess, or maybe an island of consciousness that we, that we, we are in this sort of sea of, of unmeaning, (laughs) you know, so it's very, very Kantian man kind of way of understanding human beings is that, you know, we don't, we're not really sure what consciousness is, although we're, we're absolutely convinced it's material in character, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) which is, which is, says something. Uh, but, uh, we don't know what it is. We can't replicate it when we when we try to cr- sort of recreate it virtually using computers. Um, there's a part of us that says, wow, look at that. Uh, it's conscious. And there's another part of us that says, of course, it isn't conscious. It's just yeah. a bunch of algorithms and a vast memory drawing on a range of sort of catchphrases. But anyway, but uh, but, but actually, you know, that's how they think the anybody who believes uh, mo- well, most people who follow transhumanist ideas, that's what they think our brain is. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's ultimately, right. you know, and we, we did show on this a couple of years back, but uh, I, it's a faulty way of understanding the human mind. It, it just it really doesn't work. Um, the simple question that I would want to ask is if the if chat GPT is conscious, What's it doing when you don't give it an input? Yeah, yeah. Is it dreaming? Is it scheming? Android <laughs> dream of electric sheep. I mean, yeah. Right, right. Hopefully, it's not scheming. Otherwise, we're in a whole heap of trouble. But uh, yeah, I think I think uh, that, that's all. That's all right. So, so, but this is, of course, very different than older notions of what it meant to be a human being, or what it meant to dwell in the world, or even what you know, thought consisted of. So, you know, even the, the term consciousness has a kind of contemporary feel. Uh, it's not, it's not the way people would speak of, uh, you know, sort of the unseen dimensions of our, ourselves in the past, you know, in the past to address that kind of dimension of our lives, we'd talk about, you know, we use words like soul or spirit or even intellect or yeah. mind. We, we wouldn't use consciousness. Consciousness, in my mind, uh, conveys a sense of like a television screen or something that's kind of <laughs> on, you know, or sure. not. If yeah. I'm not mistaken, we really owe that way of thinking of ourselves to Freud. Okay. Okay. Because yeah. Freud, yeah. Freud drew the distinction between the conscious, which is what we are aware of within ourselves, and the unconscious, which is the thing that actually controlled us, that we were not really aware of. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about that with regard to you know, 19th century uh, thinkers who really maintained, as you know, uh, that the, it's kind of what's really important or really operative is irrational, sort of the irrational, whether we're talking about Nietzsche or Freud or Marx or what have you. Uh, but any, anyway, yeah. Well, there's a, yeah, in this notion that, you know, you definitely see it come in, break into, I mean, it, it comes through the West and you do have, you have you have some early kind of stepping stones towards it, and I think in good ways from from a lot of the Western theological tradition. But when it gets 
distorted, um, you definitely get a picture like after Descartes, where, where it's really a becoming conscious of oneself as a thinking subject, right? That you are standing, yeah. you're not participating in reality in its intelligible ordering towards the good, if you will, um, but you are, you are somehow removed and over against it and somehow um, distinct from it. Um, and therefore, you have the ability to impose on it, but a part of it all the same and being imposed upon by it. So it is very conflictual at its core. Yeah, and it's got kind of an inner loop kind of dynamic. You know, you, who, what are you thinking about when you're doing what Descartes is talking about? You're thinking about your consciousness, you're thinking about yourself. You've got this sort of self contained loop. So you're, you're stranded in your head. So basically, modern philosophy is, uh, is the story of kind of like being imprisoned in your yourself and. Uh, this world outside yourself is either something that you impose yourself upon or um, you uh, flee from. But so you, you so this is kind of the, the, the modern way of conceiving now of things. Now, what that also means is that this sort of stuff that occupies the sort of the, your mind in terms of your desires, your appetites, your passions, uh, the the challenge uh, it, when we think of ourselves in this way is how do we sort all that out? Um, is there any way to prioritize, uh, you know, things? Um, or is it an arbitrary exercise? I choose this over that hmm. in terms of significance and importance. Um, particularly, you know, if the, partic- if, the, if the thing that is at work in you, say a passion is strong, and it, it, it's hard for you to control, um, do you still try to control it or do you kind of give yourself over to it? If you, if you try to control it, why, you know, what's, what's the motive for controlling it? If everything is just sort of in this sort of soup of consciousness and has no inherent, um, importance, you know, sort of to order one thing over another, except maybe in the most utilitarian, pragmatic sense. So obviously, if you want to win a marathon, uh, you don't eat everything that you desire to eat. Um, you, you, but you have, but, but you, you have chosen uh, to win the race, you know, and so that gives you the telos that you need in order to order your inner life and your daily routine and so forth. But there's nothing intrinsically uh, valuable that would require everybody to run a marathon. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's, that's just something that you chose to do. And who are you to tell me that I shouldn't uh, give myself over to, I don't know, drinking 30 beers a day, uh, <laughs> sleeping with animals, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, the, what I'm getting the list at. goes on. <laughs> right, right, right. Any yeah. thoughts on that? Um, I, I mean, I, I think one of the things you see here is, is how far removed again, I mean, from a Christian point of view is how removed from, from the solidities that we have from, from the past, we have really, you know, bec- you know, the, that's where we are now, basically. We're, we're far removed. I mean, one is this notion that our our choice and our freedom and our self, for that matter, what we are, um, could ever be detached from an orientation to the good. Um, the, the very fact that, you know, as a Christian, that which we owe everything to, the source of all goodness, God, um, is our inmost 
um, the, the inmost reality that grounds our being, and also the fact that because God transcends our being is the end, the highest good to which our being is oriented naturally, I'm talking apart from the fall, um, then our will is already, if you will, enacted within a movement and direction of the creature and the gift the creature is towards the source of all goodness. So to rip the creature from that thick reality and then get put the burden on it as though it could actually choose what the good is or what it isn't, choose the the meaning of the goods and their significance and purposes uh, arbitrarily, and then somehow choose between them based on whatever they happen to autonomously or freely or, or enslavedly want at the moment, um, it's radical delusion. Um, you're not living in reality, and the consequences for the human and their relations and their society and everything else is destructive. Um, there's no way out of it, and that's what the fall, of course, is. It's basically the the resistance to receiving the good as gift and being grateful and thankful and turning to the creature to give us all the pleasures, you know, um, and rather than the creator. And th- hence we move from doxological man to idolatrous man. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a good yeah. way to put it. Yeah. yeah. I, ho- I hope you're going to use that in one of your books that you're working on. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually <laughs> using it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Right. Well, the title of today's show is something I've, I've worked into the book I'm working on right now. So I'm giving a little bit of it away, but <laughs> Any thoughts, Glenn? I can see you there kind yeah. of amused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm struck by the parallelism, and this is, you know, in some coming off of some of what Tom is saying, I'm struck by the parallelism between this and uh, the whole LGBTQIAXYZ plus whatever it is. Four, eight, eight, nine. I think there's some numbers in there now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's a two S I know and a couple of other things. But but um, yeah, because what that what that says is that as a human being, you are unmoored from anything in this world. Yeah. You, you are completely what you decide you are yeah. and that that can change it's it's uh, fluid it, it can you know it can be whatever it is you want it to be at any particular moment in time because you are actually unmoored from the physical world yeah. um yeah. It, you, you you are in i i can't think of anything more terrifying frankly than the idea that you are just sort of out there in the void with nothing to provide any kind of structure or anything else to understanding who you are. It's up to you completely to make that up. And in the same way, I think that what this statement, the the statement is, uh, you know, uh, Schwab's statement is pointing to the idea that it's not only that you yourself are unmoored from the physical world, you don't have to, even in your economic life, even in your, your life, enacted in this world you don't have to have any any connection to to the world itself you know you don't have to own anything you don't have to you know whatever you need will be provided for you and you will be happy whatever happy means yeah I, i get the image of a of a of a caged animal who learns how to push the little button that releases the food or the water and that's kind of the image i have of what they 
have in store for us. But before I get into that delightful image, uh, any you know, with any more uh, specificity, <laughs> I, I want to think a little bit about kind of the odd or sort of this sort of the relevance of this, not just at a personal level, but at the level of just uh, social order and law. So we, I think we're on the very I think we're on the cusp of a of a significant pushback against transgenderism at the legal level. So I think uh, the lawsuits will will start tr- uh, with a trickle and then become a flood. I mm-hmm. think that we'll, we may end up with clash a- class action lawsuits and huge um, uh, sort of conflict uh, surrounding. Um, you know, how much uh, these people will need to be compensated. Um, I don't know how it'll all end, but it seems inevitable to me. But what this does is it forces us to deal with um, the meaning of health, the meaning of male and female, uh, meaning of biology, and not just sort of retreat into the subjective. Because as as you noted, Glenn, you know, when things are this fluid, one day you you think you're uh, a woman, the next day you realize you're a man, but you've made some decisions in the meantime with the encouragement of some pretty significant uh, people who had the power to uh, serve your delusion. And then you realize I have permanently damaged myself. I've sterilized myself. I've I've altered my physical state in such a way that uh, I'm going to have to live with what happened for the rest of my life. And I was deceived. I was too young to make that kind of choice. Uh, I was not mentally stable enough to make that kind of choice. People who should have known better should have uh, come to my aid and helped me through these struggles rather than cater to all that stuff's going to come into play. Yeah. Well, and I think especially, I mean, you see it very much in the therapy world now where they take it, they, they're they're indoctrinated at this point. The basically, the minute they hear any kind of incongruity with an identity that, oh, it must therefore be they need to transition. And they encourage it younger and younger, which is, it's terrifying because the very sources you would go to look for someone to say, you know what, let's be patient and play this kind of thing out. Um, you know, this is, you know, this is people, especially in a world for which, you know, there are no more boundaries that we can push up against. And it's, it's, everyone's anxious because they don't know what, they don't have any kind of exemplars that, that give that kind of boundary that we need to actually be a functioning, flourishing uh, human being. Um, and you know, so we don't, we don't know roles at all. We, we've broke down every hierarchy, even in, you know, the business world where you go into a job now, if the, the new hire is offended by the way that the structure of the company is by the head up, they get the, the, the higher say, you know? So I mean, you have all of this and this all falls back on, you know, the young person and they're, they're like, what do I do? Who am I? And then they see someone they trust to help them sort it out. And all of a sudden they're, oh, yeah, yeah, I am. I must be born in the wrong body because something doesn't make sense here. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and the insanity that we could get to this point, of course, we've been tracing the history of it and, and you know, really the demonic roots of it, idolatrous roots. Um, but, but this is where hell, it's no longer, as we talked about in a previous episode, it's no longer about uh, treating a sick body 
you know, it, it is really about basically treating healthy bodies with sick souls that, that do need the care of souls. They do need love and patience, but they also need truth. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the, I, I didn't mean to really derail this into transgenderism. The, the the point that I'm trying to make, to take a word from your title, which you haven't actually stated yet, but it is in the show notes, they see us as plastic creatures, as creatures that are functionally infinitely malleable into anything, yeah. well, into anything. You know, yeah. the, the LGBT th- uh, thing says that we're, you know, our bodies aren't what's important. We're infinitely malleable. We can turn it into whatever we want to. Reproduction isn't what sex is for. It, yeah. it, 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 you know, all of these things, there's no teleology there. Yeah. All of these kinds of things yeah. that you see in that movement, I think, are implicit in Schwab's statement, taking it beyond just the issue of sex and gender and turning it into, uh, you know, well, let's ask a question. What is happiness? What does that really mean? And Schwab seems to think you can mold people into an idea of happiness that is, again, untethered from material conditions, if I can use a word from Marx. Yeah, I think that's right. So let's let's dig into that. So what's implicit here, as we've noted, is some understanding of human nature. So the title of the show, of course, is Are You a Plastic Pleasure Monkey? (laughs) (laughs) Before I dig into that, though, let's step back into the older understanding. So Obviously, we're Christians. Um, we have uh, been educated in the uh, the Western uh, tradition of Christendom. Uh, we we embrace that, but it's I think also important to to point to the fact that we have other authorities in antiquity uh, that are outside the Christian tradition who also agree with us about certain important things. And an example would be uh, someone like Aristotle um, speaking to the subject of happiness. I think this is significant. But what you had with Plato and others uh, in antiquity is a sense that the human being uh, is a composite of things. There are different things that go into making up, uh, you, you know, who and what we are. Our bodies obviously are are. are uh, really important uh, in that mix, but we're not s- simply material creatures uh, or just animals in the sense that there's a not some sort of unseen dimension to us that's really important. There is, uh, a, you know, a, a dimension to us that uh, accompanies our bodies, dwells in our bodies, <clears throat> but the way uh, the kind of the taxonomy of a healthy human being uh, in that tradition puts it uh, or uh, understands it is that we're, we're tripart. You know, there's, there are the appetites. Uh, certainly those need to be satisfied uh, in order for us to just exist, <laughs> food, <laughs> etc. cetera. Uh, then there are the passions or the affections, which are um, uh, related to the appetites, uh, but also related to something else. And then there's the intellect and the intellect is not simply just a calculating machine. Uh, the intellect is really the place uh, where the highest self is is known and makes its judgments. That that, that particular dimension of our lives uh, is informed by and enjoys the appetites and the passions. But the the intellect, as a 
a prudential uh, faculty that's judging and ordering uh, is uh, keeping everything in its proper place and serving uh, some higher good, whether the, uh, that higher good is understood to be the welfare of the city, the welfare of a household, physical health, or even the gods, if we're mm-hmm. still in, in the pagan setting. Yeah. Now, a, a, a couple of comments here. First of all, you use different words, but I suspect our readers will be familiar, or our listeners sleep. Our listeners will be, uh, will be familiar with this if they are at all through the abolition of man, where Lewis uses the head, uh, the belly, and the chest. The interesting thing about that is that by going back to ancient Greek philosophy, he's actually also undermining the very books that he is critiquing. I mean, mm-hmm, because they, mm-hmm. they completely reject this way of looking at the world. Right. Um, but but there, there's another component here that you have to include, because in the ancient world, I think the closest thing that they had to what we call happiness was uh, embodied by the goddess Fortuna, mm-hmm. Fortune. Right. And Fortuna had a wheel, and yeah. the image of the wheel of fortune doesn't just go to game shows. It goes back to the <laughs> ancient world. And the idea is that fortune is very fickle. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. You're never going to stay up all the time. It's always going to spin. Yeah. And so they understood that, you know, I, like I said, I think that's the closest thing that we've got to the concept of happiness. And they, you know, they were certainly, uh, they were certainly grateful when fortune favored them, but they never expected that to last. And thus they never made that anything resembling the purpose of life because they knew it was going to betray them if they tried to do that. Uh, There's an enormous difference between Fortuna on the one hand and Beata on the other, the blessedness. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think, too, that related to that, you know, the strategies that they developed, particularly in the Stoic and, uh, you know, Epicurean schools, were intended to kind of defang fortune. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't think that the Stoics were like Mr. Spock, emotionalists, although I do think that he, uh, the Stoics were the inspiration for Mr. Spock on Star Trek and the whole Vulcan scene. Uh, but I think uh, what, what, they, what they knew is that, yes, even though you enjoy these pleasures, these goods, which are undeniably uh, worth enjoying, uh, you can't rely on them to be there uh, regularly. And so you need to develop the inner resources, the inner strength necessary to forgo them if they're not readily at hand. And you, and you shouldn't spend a lot of time pursuing them. That, that's, and that's basically true for both the Epicureans and the Stoics. And I think sometimes people don't catch the sort of the self-control that's at work within the Epicurean school. Right. They, the Epicureans were not hedonists. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, it, yeah. it might actually be worth uh, sometime down the line doing a show on Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, because yeah. that yeah. really hits this hard. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you know, another thing, another book, and I've yet to read it, but the, the title intrigues me because we we normally associate the Apostle Paul with Stoicism, but there's actually a book out there that's out of print that's uh, that's advocating that that Paul was influenced by the Epicureans as well. And it gets into that. But anyway, yeah. uh, just to plant that seed, uh, <laughs> if anybody in, in Pugcast land has that book and you wouldn't <laughs> mind letting me borrow it, I'd be really grateful. <laughs> so how, how does this all relate to happiness? Well, for Christians, 
as well as pagans in antiquity, the properly ordered life, whether it's to the glory of God or just simply prudently ordered uh, so that you don't run afoul of, uh, you know, just the good ordering of your own life or mess yourself up, requires the exercise of uh, judgment, self-control, the virtues that we normally, um, you know, promote that I don't think people like Schwab are all that interested in. Um, they have a different understanding of the human being. Um, and I really do think you can summarize their understanding, as I noted before with the title of the show, Are You a Plastic Pleasure Monkey? We've already gotten into the plasticity uh, of, of the human being. Um, and because there is this deep conviction, I think it's a conviction, that that the human is not anything normative, but is to, is to be transcended, yeah. improved upon. This is where transhumanism comes into play. It's, it's kind of fun to go back and look at, say, evangelical uh, apologetical literature, apologetic, <laughs> apologetics from the 70s and 80s, where everybody was super concerned with secular humanism. Those were the good old days. <laughs> we could only have secular humanism back. Now we've got godless transhumanism, which I think, uh, I do think grows out of a secular humanism, but it's a re- actually repudiation of, an, of humanism, just period. Yeah. <clears throat> because even the secular humanists were kind of being propelled by the fumes of Christianity. Their, their, their engines were still firing uh, along those lines because they had some assumptions about the way the world worked and what human beings are that they inherited from Christianity. Right. I, I think it's, I think it was G.K. Chesterton that described it as borrowed capital. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, well, that's right. And what you have there is, um, again, the, the repeated cry of Christianity over and over again is that you have just a bad, bad type of transcendence going on. Uh, one yeah. that isn't really transcendent. And some, the brilliant gift of Christianity's to the world besides many things was its gift of transcendence that that the human being doesn't need to increase in terms of being transformed into something it it, it isn't in terms of the goodness of its creaturely human nature um, in order to to be um, connected to eternity and their perfected and fulfilled happiness and life um, it, it is something that occurs uh, you know, with that nature, bringing that nature to its fullness, not somehow um, transcending it in the sense of of becoming something other or or altering it in a in a something that is um, going to basically throw it off as just uh, something not significant and good. This is why we have resurrection of the body at the heart and no conflict. Right? That are there is transcendence true transcendence but one that doesn't begrudge the creature its embodiedness um even if it has a higher aim of 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 communion with god in in its spiritual life that that goes the happiness where the happiness is most deeply found yeah but at the same time well i i think that there's a certain incoherence in the worldview that that we you know we're talking about here not the Christian one, the other one, um, that, um, you know, one of the phrases that you'll hear people say is get over yourself mm-hmm. or he's so full of himself yeah. or something like that. 
on the one hand, we don't, we want people not to be self-centered and egotistical and all of that. And on the other hand, we want them to determine what's good for them, what 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 makes them happy and all of that, and to pursue that. So which is it? Are, are we to pursue ourselves or are we to get over ourselves? Yeah, yeah. The, the get over ourselves is actually closer to the Christian ideal because we never reach that that true state of happiness that Tom was talking about unless we die to ourselves. Yeah. You know, yeah. when when Bonhoeffer, when, when uh, God calls a person, he calls them to come and die. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that is fundamental. You know, that, that denial of yourself is fundamental to Christian ethics. Yeah. Um, and yet it's exactly the opposite direction that, well, ethics, it's even more than ethics, but, but, but it's exactly the opposite in the world. But at the same time, they still recognize that, that it's not good to pursue yourself so much that, that you, well, you, you sort of alienate the people around you because you're so selfish, egotistical, and so on. You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you, you know, I mean, it, you know, that, you know that's not a good thing. And yet at the same time, it's almost exactly what they're telling people to do. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It's, in, it's incoherent. And it, do, it does, it does, uh, I think demonstrate that kind of, uh, we're still in a Christ haunted culture. You know, sometimes yeah. people refer to the Christ haunted South. I think the West is still Christ haunted in general. Yeah. Um, I don't think we'll be able to say that the haunting has ever ended because I do think Christianity has fundamentally changed, uh, a number of things in terms of what we expect out of life and what we expect from ourselves, but we can't really explain it very well. Like, and that's why it's incoherent. Yeah. In some sense, I mean, Christ fills all things and has filled all things in, in, you know, in the sense of there isn't any space that has not been one claimed by Christ, um, isn't being, you know, uh, aimed for being united to Christ. Um, but, but the other hand is so, you know, this is why, you know, different thinkers have said, you know, nihilism is the only nothing, the nothing is the only territory that that um where people think they can go which isn't anything anyway but it yeah. it, it shows you why the flip side of rejecting it is to have to have you know nothing <laughs> we end back, we, we back we end up there rather than everything but you you do have this uh you know you, you do have also with the rejection and there we've talked about the long process of a, of a certain rejection of a lot of things Christianity did give or a redefining of them and replacing them. And I mean, you, you know, for example, the coherence of the, the creation um, as it's ordered to the good. Now, today we look for intelligibility down, you know, if we can find it in a cell or in certain places. But the, the ancients and the early Christians, they saw it as the harmonious whole in the fact that you have so many things in creation that have bestowed on them gifts and goodness for everything else, that that the flourishing of humankind and, and the, you know, and everything else is is kind of the the it goes against the grain, if you will, of of those things that look like death and everything else um, that sh- that should have swallowed everything up. But here you have still a, a creation flourishing and having all of this resource. Um, and so that kind of that is prior to us, that intelligibility, that wisdom stamped in things is prior to our choosing 
and it is determinative of us in some way. And so we really have to rip ourselves out of that and basically say there isn't anything ordered to the good within creation. Um, it really is just like, you know, a perverted sense of the self, the fallen self, that it is about gratification of myself or that selfish desire um, to basically be gods um, in, in a way that, that brings everything under our, you know, our yeah. direct ruling. Yeah. Getting back to my, you know, question, are you a plastic pleasure monkey? We've explored the plasticity of human nature a little bit. Um, I want to look at the other two uh, terms. Uh, monkey, obviously, is intended <laughs> to get at the notion that we're merely animals, that there's no no sense in which we're participating in uh, a reality that uh, can't be reduced to the animal. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so human beings, uh, sometimes people say that guy's walking around with his head, head in the clouds. Well, uh, human beings uh, in the Christian understanding have always had their heads in the clouds. Every <laughs> single human being, you know, whether or not they, there's they're, uh, theologians or philosophers or just, you know, kids playing baseball. I mean, what, what we have is uh, a dimension to ourselves that can't be reduced to the operations of nature per se. If, 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 if that were the case, we are the most overcompensated creatures in the, the world. I mean, we, we, there, are, there are dimensions to our lives that just can't be reduced to survival. Um, and uh, they're the richest part of our lives. In other words, they're not just sort of like icing on the cake. They're the cake. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're the substance of what makes life worth living. We can attune to the intelligible aspects of the wisdom that is an ingredient within the whole of creation. I mean, this is really where that that is what gets severed um, once realism starts to go and and the and the rest in, in the West. And this is ultimately after Darwin. I mean, then when you are sort of your intelligibility is basically a survival mechanism for how you can negotiate you kind of the material environment around you and survive. I mean, that, that's the extent of it. Yeah. Um, you, I still hear this today. Yeah. 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 We have to be careful here though. In traditional Christian understandings of this, uh, like you see in Lewis, for example, when we talk about it being intelligible, we don't mean simply that it's rational, right? Yeah. That yeah. it can be understood in rational terms. Yeah. Uh, Lewis said that the intellect is the organ of understanding, but the imagination is the or organ of meaning. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I just finished a book, which I'll probably do a podcast on eventually, by Malcolm Geit called Lifting the Veil. Uh, it, it's, Geit is a theologian and poet, and he discusses imagination and the arts in this book. And what he says that the imagination does is it unites the earthly and the heavenly that it brings the spiritual and the physical or however you want to use whatever terminology you want to use, it brings them together so that you use <clears throat> earthly things to describe the heavenly or you start with the heavenly and then get to the earthly from there and you unite the two of them in what you're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's part of this intelligibility. It's yeah. not, it, it involves it involves to some extent intuition. It involves a whole lot of other things rather than just the intellect. Yeah, yeah. it's not no rational. Yeah, this is something worth worth noting. Rationalism isn't what what the classic Christianity meant by by reason. 
Um, that, that, that there's a whole history there. It was very full in which truth, beauty, and goodness are integrated um, because that, you know, because of the way the non-necessity of creation, that it is a theater of God's glory. So our closest, actually, you know, that's why worship, if you want to talk about the heart of what the best form of human correspondence to that divine wisdom, it's worship, which includes all of those aspects and their limits. Yeah. And, and, and then this all ties in, of course, to Lagos, which I yeah. think holds it all together. And when yeah. the ancients thought about you know, the intellect that was a participation in the Lagos, which is external to ourselves. It, it uh, is suffusing reality, including us, and that's why we can participate in it. It's kind of like the way the force is described by Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was that, you know, that was that anyway, I won't get into that too much, but, but the idea that it's all around us, it's, it's suffusing, mm-hmm. it's ordering reality. It is the, the, the sort of the essence of reality. What I want to do that now though, is I want to step back and think about, okay, if human beings are made up of these various dimensions or components, then how do we understand happiness? So, Happiness is not simply pleasure uh, or a kind of uh, euphoric state uh, that you just can kind of nuzzle in or sort of uh, hunker down in or get comfortable in. Um, If that were the case, then we would uh, be like, you know, Cypher in um, that film, um, Oh, the Matrix, you know, who says, I, I know that this is all just simulated reality, but who cares? Uh, it's better than real, the real world itself. Um, and he's basically bought the sort of notion that we've been talking about, the island of the consciousness or islands of consciousness in a sea of unknowing. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, the older view, would, which Aristotle had, is you could, you could kind of... Uh, say that Aristotle identified happiness as a kind of uh, as, as, as an engine with cylinders. So, you know, you know, an old fashioned, uh, you know, internal combustion engine has cylinders. Someday that will be a thing of the past if uh, Elon Musk and his friends have their way, but it still is an illustration that works for anybody as a gearhead today. So you, you've got cylinders that are firing. So you've got your appetites, You've got your affections. You have sort of the this other dimension of our lives that we've just been talking about, the, the intellect, the imagination, spiritual dimension of our lives that is sort of the, the whole. All of these things have to be firing in order for a person to be happy because with Aristotle, potential and actual, you know, this whole idea that mm-hmm. these potentialities that we have these if, in these various features of our lives all have to be at work. Now, there are certain implications to this, which are fascinating to consider. Um, One of those implications is some people by nature can be happier than others, but the people who are less happy would never know the difference. (laughs) In other words, so if if you've got like an eight-cylinder engine and your friend has a four-cylinder engine, that person could be firing on all four cylinders and be as happy as as (laughs) that person could possibly imagine being. But you... Uh, because you've got an eight-cylinder engine, have a greater uh, capacity for happiness, but you also have a greater uh, capacity for failing 
and in other words, you could be firing on three cylinders and be an eight cylinder, eight cylinder engine and be absolutely miserable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or you could be firing on five cylinders and be mil- miserable, whereas the guy firing on four syllable, cylinders is perfectly happy. That's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, the, so it, it, it kind of, it, it's kind of a, you know, you know, kind of catch 22, I suppose. But anyway, so this is, this is the thing. So now with Aristotle, he identified a certain number of pistons. What the Christian faith uh, is able to, to note is that you've missed uh, some of the more important ones, Aristotle. Yeah. <laughs> if you, if you really want to be happy, you need to uh, serve the glory of God, which is not something that's in Aristotle's Framework. Well, that that becomes the, the, that's where the the Christians, the uh, early Christians in particular, uh, Aquinas later, and then this this for those out there who want a fresh book, this book here um, just came out by the Davenant guys. Interpretation, oh, yeah. I mean, a, 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 an up to date uh, kind of reading of it. Uh, Thomas Traherne's The Shining Human Creature, which basically does exactly what you're doing, engages the the, 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 the tradition towards happiness, but that reorients it and patterns it towards the Christian transcendent end. Um, that That's his whole, it's his whole work. They, it only goes so far. Uh, Christianity addresses, um, you know, c- kind of something the rest can't, even though that aims towards it. And one of the things I think he gets after, and this is classic Christian, is that joy is that transcendent uh, aspect that we're made for, the joy that is God's own life. Uh, God exists eternally in, you know, we use the term happiness, but in eternal joy, when you, uh, where a shared communion of love, of infinite perfection and giving. Um, there is no nothing missing there, and that the sheer joy of that existence is what we as creatures were created to to partake of. Yeah. Um, and that's why the joy of heaven. You hear the angels break through, and that song of heaven breaks through. Why? And then in, in suffering, I mean, what is it that we Christian can count it uh, all joy to suffer? Well, how could you call it all joy to suffer? You know, unless you're you're kind of a sick, you know, Schwab type person. Um, um, <laughs> this this is where the 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 word happiness, I think, trips us up. Mm-hmm. Because when, like I said before, I think when we use happiness, we're thinking of fortuna, yeah, fortune. Whereas um, the the sense of happiness that we're using here is much closer to Aristotle's eudaimonia, which is not a word that we're really familiar with, and it's not a concept yeah. we're familiar with. So, yeah. so the, the word happiness—that's why you know—I I was struggling to find a word in Latin or Greek that really translates to happiness as we've got it, and there is as we think of it. And I'm—I yeah. couldn't find one, in, you know, as as I was sort of running through my vocabulary cards in my head. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you you got beata, blessed, makarios um, in yeah. Greek. You've got that, but that's not really happiness. Whatever Schuler has in his "Be Happy" attitudes, it's yeah. not. You know, it's not. You know, it's not happiness. It's not what it is. Yeah, they, you just um, dated yourself in a major way there, Glenn. <laughs> I, I've, I've used Robert Schuler uh, with certain people to to illustrate. Uh, certain things, and they're like, "Who are you talking about?" Which, <laughs> which is, which is, which is. We kinda, can be grateful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, we can be grateful, but it also demonstrates just how fleeting uh, fame is. Um, right. Yeah. You know, he was like the biggest, you know, yeah. biggest well, thing on yeah. the block for the longest time. 
You know, or, or to put it simply, there are people who translate the blessed or the poor in spirit as happy or the poor in spirit. Yeah. yeah. No. Right. Makarios yeah. Beata, it does not yeah. mean happy the way we use it. Yeah. And, and, you know, Tom, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right when you're talking about the, the, the happiness that is found in union with God. But what that is is again not the way we typically use the word happy. Yeah, that's that's why I tend to use joy more only because right. it it does it it has the capacity to to um yeah, it's not like a birthday party where you got your your favorite gift and then 2 weeks later you realize you need something else, right? Um it it is it is that enduring lasting fullness where we are brought to our full fullness, um, completion. I mean, if you think of what creation is, right? It's a we are a movement at every moment from nothingness towards the infinite that God is. We are that which is suspended between that by God's by God, yeah. and so so we have our natures, but they are directed towards towards God. Of course, they're fallen redemption, but the point of redemption is reunited to God, where we are brought. Where, where that which is lacking in us, because we aren't complete in and of ourselves, is always finding its, its deeper and deeper um, fulfillment and or to use what Chris was talking about, where our, all the potential we were create, created to be and have is increasingly realized as God communicates those goods and gifts to us towards our, our fullness of joy. And so creation itself, one could say, is basically God's pure desire to share joy with that which otherwise is nothing. Yeah, yeah. I like the way you put that too, Tom, that we're sort of in this in-between space between nothingness and full reality yeah. or full actuality. And I, I, I remember hearing, I think it was Nate Wilson, uh, Doug's son, uh, sometime mm-hmm. back talking about creation from nothing and his po- his point was is that this is an ongoing thing. It's not like yeah. just over. In other words, absolutely that you know. And maybe this is something that that physicists are are dipping into as they yeah. go, you know, down to the very smallest elements of the physical world. What they're discovering is they're not really sure what matter is anymore. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. a lot of those guys are like, wow. There's like when you get down yeah. that small, things get pretty mystical. Yeah. Yeah, stinking weird is the phrase I would use. <laughs> um, you know, th- apparently there are subatomic particles that wink into and out of existence. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. That's, that's, yeah that's what I'm getting at. There's, there's just this sense that we're on sort of this boundary line uh, when yeah. you get that small that actually reflects this idea that creation from nothing is an historic event. It happened uh, in the past, but it's also happening on an ongoing basis right yeah. now. And the, this, the interesting thing, one of the things I've been thinking about lately on, on this is sort of the intersection of metaphysics uh, and epistemology in Christ. Yeah. So Christ is the Logos. We talk about that all the time. That's sort of an epistemological concept, but he's also the one through whom all things were created, for whom all things were created, who holds all things together, and who upholds everything by his powerful word. Right. Yeah. So so he is fundamental to reality. He is fundamental to knowledge. Uh, John says that he is the light that enlightens every man that comes into the world. Yeah. So yeah. E- even the pagans, what knowledge they have is mediated by Christ. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he, he is, he is central to everything. Yeah. 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 And this is a dimension to Christology that generally speaking, evangelical theologians, certainly pastors don't do anything with. Um, Yeah. And I can't remember the last time that I heard a pastor, uh, address these things that wasn't yeah. me <laughs> well, it, yeah well it's, it, it hasn't been it has not been really i mean again there are th- theologians somewhat in the academic world that have been beating that drum for a long time but but it really has had a hard time finding its way way into to you know the church you know in general and i think one of the keys is i mean everything that i do when i talk about creation is through the lens of the incarnation and the trinity um, it's through the church's reflection on the transcend the, the significance for how we conceive of God and creation in that light, in the fullness of God as an eternal, perfect communion of love, um, and and that light. But it's the incarnation that's the linchpin there, and that it's the incarnation that grounds the church's ability, therefore, to to if you will, redeem philosophy in the sense of bringing what, like Glenn was saying, what is true in it into the purifying light of Christ, ripping it from what uh, doesn't really belong to the truth, and then attaching it to that which is the fullest sense of truth, Christ himself. And this is part of Christ filling all things through the ministry and work of, of the church. Right, yeah, right. I think the Orthodox, and, and to maybe a lesser extent the Catholics, do this much better than Protestants and especially evangelicals do. Especially American evangelicals, we're very pragmatic, we're utilitarian. Yeah. And, yeah. and the reason why pastors don't talk about this is that people will walk away uh, in, in the pews saying, so what? You know, what, what has this got to do with me? Um, yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, they wouldn't be quite that crass, but that's more or less what they're thinking. What can I do with this? And this is why they don't know what it has to do with their child who's cutting themselves up. <laughs> well, but I, but I, I think that maybe we're, we're, we're kind yeah. of uh, turning a corner on this stuff. Uh, yeah. I do think that uh, there are more and more just regular folks in the pews that are just puzzled what is going on. Yeah, yeah. Every week at my church, we have new people. I mean, yeah. the, the church, every week we're bringing in new members. What's going on? Well, I wish we could say that we're, uh, you know, uh, this great evangelistic uh, dynamo in our community. There's some of that, but uh, what I think is really happening is uh, a lot of people are like, I haven't heard my pastor address kind of the fundamental matters that help me understand what in the world is going on around here. And people are looking for for, uh, insight, help, that kind of thing. So... um, and they're 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 kind of just kind of trying to to, to find that, and 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 we're benefiting from uh, as a church that kind of growth. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think that I think that you know I know like in your case, Tom, uh, you talk about this stuff all the time, and I've been yeah. in settings where people have listened to you and have come away saying, "Wow, that answers a lot of questions that I I didn't even know I was struggling with." So, yeah. Glenn, you were saying something? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, not wanting to pat ourselves on the back too much, but I think that one of the things that the size of audience that we have on the podcasts tells us is how much the church has been lowballing Christians. Yeah. yeah, they haven't been they haven't been addressing these kinds of issues. 
And yeah. I think I think one of the reasons we've got so many people isn't because we're 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 such sparkling personalities. Mm-hmm. It's we because are. we're actually <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, but that, that isn't the key here. The, the, the important thing is, is that we're addressing questions nobody nobody really seems to want to talk about. Yeah, because they don't think people are interested or they don't think they can handle it or something. I don't know. But, maybe, they, maybe they just don't know enough themselves, I'm afraid to say. Yeah. But, but you know, I mean, like I said, I, I, I'm not saying this to pat ourselves on the back, but it, it, I think it, it's illustrative of what's needed. Yeah. yeah. And, and it is, I, I have found it hard. It is hard to move from, because a lot of it is heady and can be academic. And that's, that's just because having to dig into it in the layers of what have led to it is not easy. Plus Christianity worked through a lot of these things in, in huge debates and rigorous terminology. Not everybody has, has access to unpack it. And they usually get so skeptical of it. The minute it sounds above that kind of simplistic, easy to digest truth. And, and really these truths require rigor and, and purification of ourselves in many ways to, to, um, to really learn and listen to what the church has been trying to teach us for a long time. Um, not uncritically, of course, in the light of the fullness of scripture, but taking that wisdom and saying, wait a minute, we do have resources. They're just not easy to access. Others have been maybe better at accessing them. It's our time now too. Yeah. Well, why don't we why don't we wrap it up on that note? So the question, you know, the rhetorical question of the show is, uh, are you a plastic pleasure monkey? And the answer is <laughs> no. <laughs> you are made in the image of God, and that's not just a hallmark greeting card, uh, you know, material. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we treat it that way. It is full that 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 truth is full of meaning that you can spend your entire life. Um, exploring and trying to find ways to actualize in your life to use, you know, Aristotelian language. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, well, why don't we, why don't we just say a few things as we conclude, we do thank you for getting to the end of this show. And uh, we want you to know that we are grateful to Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. We now are part of their uh, podcast network and we're glad to be part of that. We, We continue to be part of the Fight, Laugh, Feast podcast network. We're glad that our shows are available there. Um, You know, you can get access to our show in lots of different places like Spotify and Apple Podcasts and so forth. But um, if you're interested in kind of following us uh, more closely on an ongoing basis, we have some Facebook pages where people – post funny memes uh, about us and uh we've got the grumblers got the grumblers uh we also we also have a new twitter account which we've been loath to uh to 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 take advantage of and post things with but we do have people who uh are going to be doing that for us we're even we're even in, in you know uh the early stages of of kind of getting uh, an instagram account up and going the problem is is that we're very forgetful guys and we forget to share stuff <laughs> in those places. But, but hopefully going forward, we'll have some people who help us with those things. So if you want to follow us on any of those social media platforms, uh, we welcome you to do that. Uh, also, if you want to support us monetarily, uh, we have a Patreon account and we have a number of faithful supporters who keep the, the doors open, so to speak, because there are expenses uh, with the show and we're grateful to the folks who do give to us on a regular basis and uh, if you'd like to become one of those people we'd appreciate it 
Anyway, all those things said, thanks a lot and bye bye. Bye bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might also enjoy the new book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, now available on Amazon.